The scripture reading today is from 1 Samuel chapter 30, verses 1 through 6. 1 Samuel chapter 30, verses 1 through 6. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag, on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against Nagab and against Ziklag. They overcame Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire, and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Caramel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because of all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Let's go before the Lord and pray, ask for his help. Our Father, we thank you so much for the communion table. We thank you for the reminder of Christ. We thank you for the power of the cross and the irreversible nature of what you have done there. We thank you, Father, for the covenant that you have made with us and the promises that you have made to us. And we thank you for the fact that you have shown yourself to be faithful to them all. We thank you for the fact that you will be faithful to us until the very end when you bring us home to be with you and we will see you face to face and have great and unimaginable intimacy with you forever. And we thank you, Father, for the fact that between now and then you will sustain us. Oh, Father, you are the eternally faithful God. And I pray that this very day that our hearts would turn toward you and we would learn to inquire of you and we would learn to overflow with the grace that is flowing into our lives even right now. Please come now, Father, by the power of your spirit and do this work in us. In Jesus' mighty and merciful and matchless name we pray, amen. Beloved, the Lord had been incredibly kind to David, incredibly gracious to him. The Lord had made a covenant with David. The Lord had made specific promises to David. And the Lord was faithful to that covenant. And he was faithful to those promises, even to the point where the Lord had to rescue David from himself. You remember from the last couple of weeks that David had got himself into a very serious bind. And by the grace of God, God got him out of that bind. And when he had done so, David and his 600 men traveled from the front lines of a battle that they no longer had to fight back to the city in which they were living, the city of Ziklag. That was a 60-mile journey. They had to make it on foot and with their animals and supplies and all of that. It took them three full days. So just let that set in. They didn't have cars. They didn't have bicycles. They didn't have trains. They had to travel about 20 miles a day for three days. And I think that during that time, David had a lot of time to think. David had a lot of time to pray. And I think 
that as David spent time with the Lord and sought the face of the Lord and sought the heart of the Lord, that the grace of God that had just been poured out upon his life and spared him from himself landed upon him. And David's heart began to turn back toward God. The intimacy that David knew with the Lord for such a long time began to be restored. David began to have feelings again for God. He began to have warmth again with God. His heart began to turn, beloved, and this was tremendously good news. We're going to see in the coming weeks, this was tremendously good news. Oh, what a work God did in those three days as David traveled with his men. But for now, as they approached the city of Ziklag, they could smell something and it wasn't good. They knew that something was wrong. They knew something was drastically wrong. They could smell fire. And as they peeked over the horizon and laid their eyes on their city, they saw that it had been sacked and burned. They noticed that all their things were gone. They noticed that all their loved ones had been taken captive. They did not know who did it. They did not know where they went. They did not know what had become of their loved ones or what would become of their loved ones. This was a tragic moment, a very incredibly difficult moment for everybody involved. The sacking and the burning of Ziklag was like the last straw after you thought you had experienced the last straw. And David and his men were grieving so deeply. The Bible says that they wept themselves to the point of exhaustion. Have you ever grieved that profoundly, that deeply, where you just felt exhausted by all the weeping? I'm reminded of David's line in that one psalm where he said, my pillow, Lord, is soaked at night with the tears that I've been crying. This was a moment like that for David and for all of his men. And as is often the case when we grieve that profoundly, at some point, the grief of David's men turned to powerful anger, and they began looking for somebody to blame. Haven't you been there before? Are you grieving? You're just powerfully grieving over something that's happened, and at some point, somebody's got to pay. Somebody's got to, to be to blame. And it did not take long for them to finger David because he was the obvious one to blame, beloved. These people, in their anger and and, and, and in their expression of that anger, once they kind of put their minds on David and put the blame on him, they actually even got to the point where they decided they might want to kill him. Grief turns to anger. Anger turns to revenge, you see? And, and they want his blood. They want to stone David to death. Beloved, these were not the most upstanding citizens in the world. This was a group of very rough-shod men, but they had forsaken everything in their lives to follow this guy. Some of them didn't have much, but what they had, they walked away from to follow this guy. They knew who he was. They knew that he was the rising king of Israel. They, for a number of reasons, were estranged from Saul, and they decided to attach themselves to David. They went out to the cave where he was hiding from Saul, and they ran with David from one place to another, to another, to another, to another, month after month, year upon year, as they evaded Saul. They lived the lives of hunted animals and social outcasts because they were being loyal to this guy. 
And they even followed him when he defected from Israel and went to their mortal enemies, the Philistines. They even followed him when they suited up with the Philistines and went to war against their own people. They stood with David as he concocted that deadly deceit to win the affection of King Achish. They had been faithful to him, beloved, and they had been through a lot It's hard to tell exactly how much time has passed from the time David left Saul's house until now, but it's a minimum of three years. These men had suffered a lot because they were loyal to David, and when they saw that city burned, and when they saw that their families were gone, it was just too much. It was just too much. They were angry, they wanted revenge, and that's all there was to it. And you know, the truth of the matter is, that David was actually to blame for what was going on here, wasn't he? Most of you have been sitting through this series. Just think back through what we've learned. David is to blame here. It was David who made the decision in his flesh, not by faith, to defect to the Philistines. It was David who made the decision in his flesh, not by faith, to raid the people of Amalek and others And so now what was happening is the raiders came to raid David, and believe me, they knew exactly who they were raiding. They knew exactly who they were after. David was reaping what he sowed. Beloved, I see no way to get around the fact that David is, in fact, responsible for what's going on here. While it's true that the Lord was for him and not against him, while it's true that the Lord was working all things together for his ultimate good, the Lord also allowed David to taste some of the bitter fruit of the sins he had committed. And unfortunately, his men and their families had to taste that bitter fruit along with him. And one thing I learned from this part of David's story is that though God is gracious to us, he does not take our sin lightly, even after we come to Christ, even after we enjoy the communion table. The Lord is going to work all things together for our good. But that doesn't mean he dismisses the rebellion that remains inside of our hearts. In his mercy, God removes the poison of our sin, but he often allows us to feel the sting. Isn't that true? He removes the rabies from the bites, but he will allow us to feel the bite because he's a loving father. And he wants not only to forgive our sin, but he wants us to learn to live in a different way. He wants to teach us to live by faith and not in our flesh. David, David was feeling the sting, beloved, and that sting was bitter. He was experiencing a sort of double sting, if you will. On the one hand, he was grieving everything that his men were grieving. But in addition to that, he was now again under the threat of imminent death, but now it was at the hands of the people who had stood by his side all this time. Do you see that? His own people who had been loyal to him are now turning on him, and he deserved it. He deserved it, and I think David knew that. So I put myself in his skin at this time of his life. It must have just felt to David like every time he got away from a bear, he ran into a lion. Every time he jumped out of the frying pan, he went right into the fire. It was not true, but in his heart, he probably felt like he was under the curse of God and not under the blessing of God. What would you begin to feel if for three years, everything you do just seems to go the wrong way? 
God had blessed him, but he must have felt cursed at times. He must have felt, at least in his heart, that the Lord was actually not for him, but that the Lord was against him. In his mind, he knew better, but we all understand, sometimes under the pressure of life, it just feels like God is against me. Something's really wrong with me here. Something's not right. But beloved, those three days, oh, they were so important. Those three days journeying from the battlefront to Ziklag, David turned his heart toward the Lord, beloved. He turned his heart toward the Lord. So when he saw that fire, when he smelled the fire, when he heard the grief of his men and received their vile and deadly threats, he immediately and instinctively turned his heart toward God. Look at verse 6. And David was greatly distressed. Please take those words seriously. He was greatly distressed. For the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord, in Yahweh his God. The Lord used the fire of Ziklag to lead David into the fire of his presence and power. Do you see that? The Lord used the fires of David's life to drive him into the presence of the fiery God who was for him and not against them. Surely the fire of God's presence convicted David of guilt, but surely the fire of God's presence purified his heart from that penchant to turn away from God. He was not perfectly purified at this time, but believe me, in the fiery presence of God, things happened on this day in David's life. In the fiery presence of God, David received new strength and new resolve to press on and to lead a people who now wanted to turn against him and kill him. In the fire of God's presence, David strengthened himself in the Lord. Oh, this, it's so important. It, the, The problem right at this moment is this is such a simple idea that we might miss the power of it. He did not pump himself up psychologically. He strengthened himself in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord. Put on his armor. Be strong in the strength of his might. That's what David did. I think at this time, David went into God's presence and he first of all remembered the word of God. David is a lover of what we call the Bible. He would not have called it that. He was a lover of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, and probably Job was existing at that time. Surely the words of God began to return to David and he remembered them and the promises of God and the faithfulness of God to Abram, Isaac, and Jacob and so many others. Surely David remembered the day of his anointing and all the things that were spoken of him and all the things that Samuel taught him in the coming years. Surely David remembered when his good friend Jonathan came to him and strengthened himself, strengthened his friend David by the words of God. Jonathan did not just pump up his friend in the flesh. He reminded him, David, remember what God said and believe in what God will do. David remembers all this, beloved. He's remembering the words, the purposes, the promises of God and I think As David sat in the presence of God, he remembered so many experiences. 
when he was a kid out in the field taking care of his father's flocks. There's a bear, there's a lion. David prayed, David trusted in God, and this kid overcame a lion, he overcame a bear. How? By faith in God. That's how. We saw that clearly when we read that part of his story. He was not just a courageous, crazy kid. He was a kid who had faith, beloved. And he remembered surely on the day when God took all that faith and thrust him out into a battlefield against the mighty Goliath, whom he defeated by faith. And surely David remembered all those battles that he led out against the Philistines, leading Israel in victory along with Jonathan for the first time in about forever. Surely. David remembered the grace of God in helping him to duck and dive and evade the spear of Saul that had been thrust in his direction with deadly intentions. Surely, David remembered day by day as he traveled from this place to that and how God saved him from one circumstance after another after another by faith. Please, please take time to understand this. David strengthened himself in Yahweh, his God. This was not a time of psychological pumping up. This was a time of remembering the words of God, the purposes of God, the promises of God, the presence of God, and the continuing presence of God. David's heart turned toward the Lord so that he now saw his circumstances from God's perspective. And this shift in perspective is so huge because you know what? When we say that God works all things together for our good, We are talking about circumstances and things. It's true that God orchestrates history, that he orchestrates things that happen to us, he orchestrates things we do, things other people do, weather, all kinds of stuff for our ultimate good. This is true. But ultimately, what it means to say that God's working everything together for our good is that he is on an eternal quest to capture our hearts. He is on an eternal quest to shape us into his image, and he will not stop until he's done. Oh, the hope that is right there, may we have ears to hear. He will not stop until he's done and beloved. God has captured the heart of his son, David, again. He had his David back. Do you see? He had his David back. God did not just want to do things for David. He wanted to walk in intimacy with David. And now the intimacy had been established again. It had been about 18 months since David tasted an intimacy with God like this. Just think about that. A year and a half for a true lover of God in his life where he really was numb and distant from God. And it must have felt to David like he was just a thousand miles away from God. It must have felt like the wall between him and God was so great and so thick. But you know, the truth is, God was closer than David's breath. The wall between him and God, if it was even there at all, was like tissue paper. It was like nothing. And when David turned, he found the Lord right there. In one of the worst circumstances he had actually faced to this day, he found that God was right there. I learned a lesson from this that I want to pass on to you. No matter what circumstances or others would say, the Lord is only one prayer away. No matter what circumstances or others would say, no matter what your own heart would say, the truth of the matter is, for us right now in this room, as it was for David, is that the Lord is only one singular prayer away. David turned and he found God right there, right there, right there. And I have to say, 
that in some ways, it does not matter how the rest of the story turns out. I don't mean to be callous about the life and death of people that David loved and that his men loved. I don't mean to be callous about so many difficulties. But I really mean what I'm saying. In many ways, it does not matter how the rest of the story turns out because the big thing has just occurred. A father has recaptured the heart of his son, beloved. And that is what God was after. God was after David. And now, by grace, he had him. He had him. No matter what circumstances or others might say, the Lord is only one prayer away. And like David, we too sometimes make fleshly decisions and we face fires of our own making. We get people that we love involved with us and they're hurting too and sometimes they even turn on us. Sometimes they don't, but sometimes they just suffer along with us. And in those situations, beloved, I want to say to all of us that I think part of what God is up to is helping us to face the seriousness of our sin. He's helping us to feel the sting so that we won't have to die from the poison. But as it was with David, so it is with us. The Lord will use the fires of this life to drive us into the fire of his presence if we will only cooperate. He will use the fires of your particular life that you're facing right now to drive you into the fire of his presence. So be like David, your brother. Be like him. Turn toward the Lord and do it now. There's no need to wait. Do it right now. Make a decision in your heart right now that you're gonna turn. In fact, I want to just pause right here and just take just a minute to prayer to pray and just give you a second to turn your heart toward the Lord. If that wall seems so thick to you, believe me, it's not. If God seems so distant to you, believe me, he's not. So let's just take one minute now and pray. Father, thank you so much for this part of David's story. Thank you, God, for what you did in his life. Thank you for preserving this story for us. Thank you for teaching it to us this morning. Thank you for laying out this feast before us and giving this invitation to us. Oh, my sons and daughters, just turn to me. Just turn to me and look. I am right here. Oh, God, help us to take advantage of this. Lord, I pray for anybody who's facing fires of their own making right now and who feels numb towards you for whatever reason. I pray that they would just turn right now. And Father, for those who have recently turned and for those who have already been turned towards you, I pray for them that you would use this story to bless them and keep them and make your face shine upon them. I pray that you would use this story to be wind in their sails, oh God, that you would increase their faith, increase their passion, increase their joy to know you, oh God. Oh Father, by the grace of your heart and the power of your hand, cause us to turn now. I want to just be silent for a second and give you a a moment to pray to the Lord in your own hearts. Thank you, Father, for what you've done in this time. Amen. Beloved, if you just turned your heart to the Lord in some significant way, I cannot promise you because the Bible doesn't promise any of us that everything's going to go well. There might be a cross in your future. I don't know. But that's a lot less important than the fact that intimacy with God has been established. Because if you have intimacy with God, he will even use your sufferings to bring about his purposes in your life. If you have intimacy with God, nothing on this planet can ultimately work against you. More important than comfort and ease of circumstance is having intimacy with the Lord. So whatever he started in your heart right now, please let him finish that work later 
today. Now let's go back to David and think about him and see how things turned out for David. He strengthened himself in the Lord his God, but he was still facing a daunting and a deadly situation. So you know what he did? He did what men of God and what women of God do. He inquired of the Lord. He went and talked to his father and said, Father, what shall I do? To be specific, he called the high priest to him. You remember the high priest had defected to him. And he said, Brother Abiathar, bring that holy vestment, the ephod, with you, and let's do what God has required, and let's ask his opinion. And David said to the Lord, Oh, Lord, my father, shall I go up against this band? You notice he just calls them this band. He doesn't know who did this. He doesn't know where they are. He doesn't know what's become of his loved ones, but he knows that God knows. So he said, Father, shall we go? And if I go, will we have success? Oh, this is such a beautiful thing, beloved. I just, as I imagined this yesterday, I went on a prayer walk and I kind of just got stuck in this moment. Just imagining what God must have felt when he heard the prayer of his son. Just thinking to himself, oh, I have my David back. I have my David back. And his father was so delighted to answer his prayer, so delighted. He said, son, yes, indeed, go up after them. And yes, son, you are gonna overtake them. You're gonna catch up to them. You're gonna find them. And son, you did not ask me this question, but I'm gonna answer it anyways because I know what you're really asking. I want you to know something. You are gonna get your families back. They're gonna be just fine. Go get them. David was so invigorated, beloved. He had heard from the Lord. There is nothing in this world like the confidence, like the strength that comes from hearing a clear word from the Lord and knowing that you are about to do his will. So David, even though he and his men were so tired from a three-day journey and from all of this weeping and wailing, they suited up, they put everything together, and they hit the road to the south, not having any idea where they were going exactly or exactly who they were looking for. They were going by faith, not by military intelligence. And they went. Twelve miles into the journey, they came across a brook called Besor, and that little brook is still there, by the way. You can Google it and see a picture of it. When they got to that brook, about 200 of the guys that were unable to keep the pace with David finally caught up there, and when they caught up, they had to admit to David that they were unable to go on anymore. These were not disloyal men. These were not unmotivated men. These were not self-centered, lazy men. They were just flat exhausted Yesterday I watched a couple videos about the Boston bombing and it was all basically from the point of view of the police talking about what happened in the 102 hours between the time the bomb went off and the time they caught the final bomber. And one of those cops said that about three days into the situation, a bunch of his guys literally just passed out from exhaustion and had to be taken to the hospital. A bunch of them. I can't remember the exact number so I don't want to name it, but I was surprised by the number of guys. Those police officers wanted nothing more than to continue the fight, didn't they? They did not want to be taken out of the game and go to the hospital, but they collapsed in exhaustion. This is what David's men were like. They were not lazy or disloyal. They, were, they just had nothing left in the tank. So David takes off with his 400 men, and it's kind of a, a Gideon moment. I don't think David cares that he's only got 400 men left. I think David would have been fine with one other guy or no other guys. David knew that he had heard from God. That's all he needed. That's all he needed. He still had that strength. He still had that confidence that God was going to do something. And so they headed to the south. And pretty soon, 
Some of David's men find this young man just wandering in the desert. Very unusual thing to see, and this guy doesn't look good. He looks very famished. So they bring him to David, and they give him food and drink. Turns out this guy hasn't eaten or drank anything in three days. And so when his strength returns, David says, son, who are you? What's up with you? What are you doing out here? Turns out, just a little quinky-dink here, that this kid is an Egyptian slave of an Amalekite man. And he had been traveling with his master and all his master's people, the Amalekites, as they raided one town or another. And oh, by the way, we came to this town called Ziklag and we raided it and we burned it to the ground. I cannot imagine what David felt when he heard those words. He knew now that God had brought him the intelligence that he needed. Beloved, I lived in the desert before. I know what it's like to just wander into the middle of a desert. It gets, first of all, so disorienting, even just to know which direction you're going. And all these things, you can probably imagine it if you think of the North Woods. And they just literally went out into the wilderness by faith, and God led them right to the perfect person who could give them all the intelligence they needed. So David said, son, will you bring me to them? And he said, yes, sir, as long as you promise not to kill me. (laughs) And David quickly agreed to that. Being guided by the Lord and by this young man, David and his men came right to where the Amalekites were. And the Bible says they could see them spread out across the land. And as they saw them there, they were drinking, they were eating, they were partying, they were dancing, they were celebrating all the spoils that they had just taken from so many people. And you know what David did by faith? By faith, he waited on the Lord. He waited. Strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord. Oh, as we wait upon the Lord. Strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord. Think of the faith that it took. It was nighttime. These people are getting drunk and they're partying. Good things don't happen at night when mean people are getting drunk. And their families were down there, right? This took faith, beloved. This took faith. When the morning dawned, David struck, and he struck hard. I know that the ESV says that he struck at twilight, but the way that the Hebrew reads, it most likely means that he struck at dawn, and this is the way that the old uh, Greek version of the Old Testament translates the word. It says that David struck at dawn, which makes a lot of sense. That's the time that you would launch a surprise attack. And by the way, it's also a good time to come against people who are hungover, Right? So they struck at dawn, and they struck hard. And there must have been a lot of these people, because the Bible says that David struck them all day long, and he had complete success, except for 400 men who escaped on camels. Now, I have to admit to you, when I read that detail of the story, that they escaped on camels, that first of all seemed funny to me, and it did not seem likely to me at all. I just could not imagine people hightailing it out on camels. So praise God for Google. I just Googled, how fast can a camel run? And I was shocked to see that a camel can sprint up to 45 miles an hour. They can sustain a pace of 25 miles per hour for an hour. They can sustain a pace of 12 miles an hour for 18 nonstop hours. No wonder God put water packs on their back, right? These are the ultimate endurance animals. So yes, 400 men got on their camels and they got away. And David struck the rest of them, every single one of them. And there is such grace here, beloved. Do you remember who the Amalekites are? Is that striking any chords with you? Think about 1 Samuel chapter 15. 
The Amalekites were the ones that God commanded King Saul to go and wipe off the face of the earth. These people, for four centuries of time, had raided and pillaged and killed people. They were a sort of ISIS-like group that God was patient with century after century after century after century. And at some point in his mercy toward other people and his justice toward these people, the Lord said, that's enough. King Saul, I am giving you a sacred assignment. Go down there and execute my justice, my wrath against them. Wipe them out. Leave nothing, leave no one. Saul came back from that and told Samuel he had killed everybody, but that he spared the goods and the flocks and all that because they were too valuable. You remember that? And because of that, the Lord ripped the kingdom out of his hands. You might wonder, why would the Lord do something so drastic? Well, think about this story. Where in the world did all these Amalekites come from as Saul had killed them all? Where did they come from? Saul was lying through his teeth, beloved. He probably killed a few here and there, but he didn't kill many of them because this band of raiders was huge and there was no time between 1 Samuel 15 and this chapter, there was no way that a whole new generation of people grew up and were at the age to be warriors. No way. This story gives us a peek into the wickedness of Saul's heart and it helps us to see why God took the kingdom from him and gave it to David. God even took this sacred assignment from Saul and gave it to David. And we'll just have to trust the Lord about those 400 who escaped. Maybe that's grace. Maybe that's a God of tremendous grace who lets some people escape who should, in fact, have died. But one way or the other, the Lord is being unbelievably gracious to David. Having given him that assignment, the Lord was so near to him and so gracious to him. Please look with me in verses 19 and 20. I want to read with you the, the emphatic nature of what the Bible says here. This is after the battle now. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, this is David's spoil. Do you see that the Lord not only allowed David to capture the stuff and the families, but he allowed David to capture the hearts of his people. They turned from being murderous toward David to now singing his praise. As they're marching along, this is like saying Saul slain his thousands, David his tens of thousands. It's very much like that. But now the song is, this is David's spoil. All this is David's spoil. He's the man. He's God's man. He's our man. He's the anointed one. We were upset with him, but we were wrong, and we were right to follow him. We're glad that we clung to him. We're with David. This is David's spoil. This is David's spoil. Oh, beloved, the grace of God to David in this time. Unbelievable. When the dust had settled and all the things were prepared for travel, they took off back to the north. And eventually they reached that brook where the 200 men were waiting. And when those 200 men saw the David and his men and all the flocks and all the people coming, oh, the joy that rose in their heart. And they ran out to greet David, and David warmly received them. But you'll notice that the Bible says at this point that some of David's men who were worthless and wicked, the Bible's words, not my words, rose up and said, you know, these 200 people should not receive any of the spoils. We should give them back their families, their wives, their children, but they should not receive spoils. If they did not go and take the fight, they should not benefit from the fight. 
And in some ways, what they were saying makes sense. But David had a more godly point of view. He had a more gracious point of view. And I love what he said so much that I want to read this with you, verses 23 through 25. You shall not do so, my brothers. He called them my brothers. With what who has given us? With what the Lord, with what Yahweh has given us. David is giving all glory to God. He has preserved us. He has given into our hand the band that came against us. So who would listen to you in this matter, brothers? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. Each part plays its part, and they shall all share alike. And David made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward. We are one people. We suffer together. We rejoice together. We fight together. We benefit together. Beloved, what I see happening is that David is being very gracious because he is now overflowing with the grace of God that has been poured into his life. David is treating others as he has been treated. David is treating these 200 people with tremendous grace. And you know who else he's treating really well right now? He's treating the wicked and worthless men with a lot of grace right now. He did not rebuke them. You know what he's doing? He's teaching them. He's saying, brothers, you guys, we have to understand, by the way, these are not the kind of guys that wear polo shirts and sip tea at Starbucks. These, these are biker types, like the old types, right? The rough shod. These are tough guys. And David is saying, brothers, we don't live this way in God's family. We don't do it this way. We receive grace, we live by grace. I've taught you about living by faith now. You've seen how God delivered us, and now I need to teach you to live by grace. David is being very gracious to these wicked and worthless men. He even calls them his brothers. I love this about him. David is overflowing with what God gave to him. I learned this lesson from that. Grace overflowing is a sure sign of grace received. Grace overflowing is a sure sign of grace received. You know that a man has received the grace of God or that a woman has received the grace of God when he or she just almost instinctively overflows to be gracious to those who are around them, whether they have power or whether they don't have power. I am so moved by this part of David's story, but there's more. It's like an infomercial now, but wait, there's more. When they get back to the scorched city of Ziklag, David decides to take some of his vast spoils and send them to the leaders of Judah. And while this might seem to us like a political move, I don't believe that it is. And I'll give you three reasons why. First of all, David was from Judah, and these were his people, right? David's father was a powerful man, and they were connected with other powerful people. They all knew him. He knew all of them. These were his people. He's blessing his people. Second thing, these people had supported David through all of his wanderings in the desert. They went out to visit him in the cave and in other places. They gave him supplies. They gave him food. They gave him military intelligence. Who do you think it was that told David, hey man, Saul's coming, get out? It was his people. And in a very real sense, he owed them, beloved. He owed them. And then finally, earlier in the story, it says that the Amalekites had actually sacked some of the towns of Judah. And so the spoils that David had, part of those spoils actually belonged to the people of Judah. So he's returning to them what's rightfully theirs. What I see is that David is being gracious, he's being grateful, and he's being just because God has been these things to him. And if there's some political benefit to all this, so be it. 
But I'm convinced that in David's heart, that's just not where he was. I think he was just overflowing with God's grace. Now, as for the Lord, the Lord is setting David up here. David has no idea in just several days the grace that's about to pour out on his life. In this much time, he's going to be anointed as the king of Judah. It's going to happen in a matter of days. David doesn't know about this, though. He's overflowing with grace, and God is using these gifts to the people of Judah to set him up to be the king. Oh, Lord God, help us to see the grace of your heart as it pours out about on people that turn their faces toward you, that turn their hearts toward you. May the Lord powerfully use this story in our lives. As I have thought over the last few days about how this story does apply to our lives, I come to simple, simple things. Nothing that's hard to understand. The power of these things comes in the living of them, not in the understanding of them only. And so here's what I've been telling myself and what I'll now tell you. As I look at the story, I say one thing. Heart, soul, turn to the Lord. It doesn't matter how resistant your heart is. Your Father is right there, closer than your breath. There is no wall, and if there is, it's paper thin. It's tissue paper thin. It's nothing. Turn toward the Lord, my soul. Turn toward the Lord. Turn toward the Lord. Turn toward the Lord. And having turned, the second thing that I learned from David is that we should inquire of him. Do you notice that when the fire of Ziklag landed on David, you know, he had already turned his heart toward the Lord. Then he faces this fire. He immediately just kept turning, and he brought the fire to God and said, Now, Father, what shall I do? I caused all of this. All this is my fault. But Father, I can't solve in my flesh what I caused in my flesh, so please, Father, help me. And God helped him indeed, beloved. God helped him indeed. So if you have got yourself into some bind of your own making, turn to your Father and inquire of him. Look to the Word. Call upon the Spirit. Do it in Christian community. Let us walk through these things with you inquire of the Lord. Make it an instinct, a habit of your life. At every single turn, Father, what do you think? What do you think? What shall I do? Believe me, God guides those who look to him for guidance. This is just a law. It's a law. And finally, as I look at this, what I see is learn to overflow with the grace that God has poured into your life. Grace overflowing is a sure sign of grace received. And as you receive grace, oh, have the joy of flowing with it. Don't be like that person. Remember the parable Jesus told of a guy who was forgiven like $10 million debt, and then he went and choked somebody for 20 bucks that they owed him? Don't be like that guy. That's stupid. That's silly. Don't be fleshly. Be like your father. Be a a river of grace and not a reservoir. Learn to live by faith and also learn to live by grace. To me, this is the point of this story. And I do pray with all my heart that God will use it powerfully in our midst. Would you please turn with me to Psalm 25? One scholar that I consulted in my studies this week thinks that David wrote Psalm 25 in this time, and he had a lot of reasons for that. I'm not going to go into his reasons. He admits that he may be right or wrong about this, but there are just so many connections that I thought a good way to end today would be to read David's words in Psalm 25 as our closing prayer. So let me read this for you now, and then we will rise and sing to our gracious King. David writes in Psalm 25, to you, O Yahweh, I lift up my soul. I turn my heart to you, O God. Oh my God, in you I trust. Please let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. 
They shall be put to shame who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Yahweh. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. And for you I wait all the day long. Strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord. Remember your mercy, O Yahweh, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. And O Lord, remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your own goodness, O Yahweh. Good and upright is Yahweh, and therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He teaches them. He leads them. He guides them. He leads the humble in what is right, and he teaches the humble his way. All the paths of Yahweh are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Yahweh, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Believe me, beloved, David did not underestimate his sin. Who is the man who fears Yahweh? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, in shalom, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of Yahweh is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant and all that goes with it. My eyes are ever, always, constantly, persistently toward Yahweh, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Oh God, I'm facing so many things. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, redeem your sacred holy people, O God, out of all his troubles. O Lord, please now make this our prayer, we pray in Jesus' mighty and merciful and matchless name. Amen.